Welcome to Hippie Witch, magic for a new age. I'm your host, Joanna DeBone, and this is a happy, hippie place for talking all things magic, witches and fiction, and creating the kick-ass life of your dreams. Hello! Thanks for joining me for episode 397 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe and I am the kooky creatrix behind Kick-Ass Witch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com or back on the description page for this episode back on Blog Talk Radio where you will also find a link to Joanne Harris. Joanne Harris, what? This is my job. How is this my job? I have the best job. (laughs) I'm so excited. Excited to get to share this with you all. Joanne Harris is one of my all-time favorite authors, and it was a huge honor to have her on the podcast. Definitely a highlight of my podcasting career. I can't wait to share that with you. And then after the interview, the kid and I just so randomly stumbled on this band when we were hiking through the hills of Hollywood one day, and I wrote to them to see if they would let me share a song with you all, and they said yes. So this episode is going to be rad, 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 top to bottom. But before we get to that, I also must give a very enthusiastic thank you. Thank you so much to the lovely people supporting the podcast And let's face it, supporting my kid and I. Thank you for supporting us over on Patreon. I want to give a special shout out to new patrons, Cassandra Locklear, Dee Bonanza, Pax Nova, Gabriella, and Met Fern Spirit. Thank you all so much. Dig in, go back through the archives, have an awesome time over there. We're going to be doing a book club around the book Chocolat, fitting. If you don't know who Joanne Harris is, when I was introducing her here on the podcast, she's the author of Chocolat. You may have seen the movie, right? But have you read the book? We're going to be reading Chocolat in June, and the lovely Phoebe Miller has set up a book club for us over there, and then we get to live chat anytime we feel like it. We pop over to Discord, and we chat about whatever the book of the month is, and this month it is Chocolat. So if you're over on Patreon, make sure you check that out. I also want to say, have you noticed, have you noticed how many celebrities are coming for my job? (laughs) J-Lo, Russell Brand, Will Smith, Kiefer Sutherland, they all have YouTube channels now, but podcasts specifically, there's Gwyneth Paltrow, Amy Schumer, Dax Shepard, Anna Faris, Kevin Smith, Justin Long. They all have podcasts now. Alyssa Milano, Chelsea Handler. Who else? There's so many more. There's so, there are so many. And 
there's a little part of me that's like, oh my gosh, how how am I? How am I supposed to compete with Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> or Alec Baldwin? I love both of their podcasts. Let's just say that. I actually really love both their podcasts. But the truth is there is, there is no competing. There's room for us all. And we live in the most exciting time that way. I, all growing up and in my young adulthood, I always wanted to be a part of my time, to to play a real part in pop culture, not as an observer, but as a creator and a contributor to the way this moment in history is being shaped. And I realize now that in my own teeny tiny way, I am. This is it. This is it. There is no there over there. It is right here, right now. And we are all a part of it. If you have a a social media account, if you're, you know, posting pictures on Instagram, you too are a part of it in your own little way. And we all have a chance to participate. So I'm extremely thrilled that someone I have looked up to for a long time and who I see as a celebrity is actually on the podcast today. But I just wanted to point that out, that all our voices are valid now. And I have just as much fun bringing someone like my friend Kathy or Joni Griffith, who I just had on the show because I met her downtown one day in Los Angeles, and she told me all about biking across country. I have just as much fun And I'm just as thrilled to have someone like that on the show as I am to have a world-class author like Joanne Harris. I just love podcasting and I'm feeling it today and I want you all to know that. (laughs) You might also really enjoy that in the interview coming up, Joanne Harris talks about the synchronicities surrounding the making of the movie Shock a Lot after her book became a success. It was made into the movie, which a lot of you probably have already seen and love. And something I think is really going to rock your socks is she talks about having synesthesia. Wow, I did not know that about her. Very, very cool. A book of hers that I forgot to mention during this interview that I must mention if you love Shakalot and all the sequels. There's a new sequel coming out in that series here in July in America, but if you're in the UK, it's already out. It's called The Strawberry Thief. She writes a lot about food. It makes you very hungry. It's very romantic. She actually has a cookbook called My French Kitchen. So if you want to keep the Chocolat love alive in that way, (laughs) this book is so beautiful. I love to read cookbooks in bed, and this is one of my favorites. The photos are, they just transport you to Paris another time. It gives you all the vibes of Chocolat, but in a cookbook format. So check it out. And without any further ado, here she is. One of my personal writing heroes, Joanne Harris. Hi, Joanne. Great to be with you. Yes, this is a long time in the coming for me because I got a newsletter from you last fall that said that you were doing a new book called The Strawberry Thief that would be coming out 
in April in honor of Chocolat's 20th anniversary. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to her about this. And I started chasing you down. And here we are, however many <laughs> months later. And I have chills. It's a very exciting moment for me because I really am a huge fan of many of your books. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so pleased they've resonated with you. I have to say 20 years has gone by awfully fast. It's quite difficult to, to think of it in those terms, but I'm just so grateful that, that people still like the books and still care about the characters enough to want more stories about them. Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody listening who only knows the movie Chocolat, you must read the book and then you must read the sequels and the strawberry thief is part of that story it is yes it's it's part of that story although you can read it on its own but if you do want to expand the world and expand the relationships then yes it is part of a a kind of story cycle but it 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 can be read by people who haven't read the previous books if they if they want to mhm well we're a bunch of book nerds here, but specifically book nerds that love magic. And you do it in such a subtle way that I think is really interesting. It, there's like some restraint, even though your books are very lush. Well, I think initially what I wanted to do was to to talk to the people who are not comfortable with reading about magic or fantasy and to give them a kind of way of interpreting the story in a way that, that would be acceptable to them. So you can read those books in terms of magic realism, if you want to, you can totally think of Jan as being a witch and accept that. But if you're not the kind of person who who feels that they can engage with that kind of a story, you can see it as a metaphor through which the uh, the story is filtered, and you can see it as an unreliable narrator writing in terms of the way they process the world too. And I kind of quite like the idea of approaching a story from multiple perspectives like that and giving people different things that they can take away from it. Yeah, and, and reading is such a collaborative experience. I think each book is different for e each reader. It's our own imagination that we bring to it, and I love that you make space for that. Well, I think inevitably books are, are kind of like Rorschach tests. You bring as much to the table as you take away, and so depending on what kind of person you are, you will focus on different aspects of the book. And, and you know, I was a teacher for such a long time, and I, I, I told, for 15 years, I told pupils in the class um, how books were constructed, what they should take from them. I really kind of like not having to do that now. Oh, but you do. You do it on Twitter. <laughs> well, I don't tell people what to think. I tell them what works for me. Right. And yes, you can't quite take the teacher away from the classroom for too long. Twitter has become my classroom. It's fabulous. I love how supportive you are of young writers. You do this series called 10, what is it, 10 Things? Um, yes, 10, 10 things about different things. And I tend to take uh, requests because people people are always asking me questions about the writing process. And I thought rather than just answering individuals' questions over and over and over again, I, I might as well hold a series of little mini seminars. And usually you can, you can say more or less everything that needs to be said on any single aspect of writing in 10 tweets. And I find that 10 tweets is usually the attention span of the average tweeter anyway. So yeah, it, it has become a kind of almost daily thing. It's really helpful. It's, it's no BS. Like you just tell it like it is. There's a little humor sometimes, but mostly it's just straightforward. Like these are the facts, people. Well, well, 
the thing is, nobody was there to tell me the facts when I was starting off. Nobody told me anything. I had to make up uh, everything as I went along, that or just make a lot of mistakes. And I think if it had been possible for me to just connect with people as easily as it is now for people to connect with other writers and to have a supportive network, I would probably have made fewer mistakes and, and been successful quicker because there were lots of things which to me are now very obvious. And I'm clear, you know, I'm clear in my mind that they are not obvious to everybody. So what does an editor do? Why do I need one? How do you get an agent? Why do I need one of those? Do I need one of those? Um, is self-publishing easier than conventional publishing? These questions, I, they're perfectly valid ones, and there are not that many people out there answering them. Well, I appreciate that you don't sit high up on your writerly hill, that you come down to the rest of us sometimes with, <laughs> with goodies. <laughs> Have you ever considered creating a book out of the, out of the series? I might do it someday. I, I might. Um, people have asked me that quite a lot, and and uh, and I always say, well, you know, never say never. But it's it's not something that I'm planning to do straight away. Yeah. Well, the temptation is to go back through your Twitter feed and print out my own because I would love to have it all in one place. People have done this and they've collected them and they've put them on their own websites, and that's also fine. Um, people expecting me to have done it, less fine, because I'm just a bit lazy when it comes to things like that. Scrolling <laughs> my own Twitter feed for advice I gave six years ago, that's not going to happen. I like Twitter's conversational aspect. I like the fact that it's very informal, it's very reactive. Um, I also like its ephemeral aspect, and so I'm, I'm not normally likely to go out of my way to keep things that I've put on Twitter because I kind of quite like the fact that Twitter changes on a weekly basis and and obviously my answers to questions are likely to change too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really enjoy it too because people can connect with their heroes there and some of the people that you admire will actually write you back or like your tweet or retweet it and it's really fun to see how fans get such a thrill out of that and and you've done it for me before when I got a pocket full of crows <laughs> you had a really charming book come out around Christmas time called a pocket full of crows but it was only released in the UK at that time and I was like I must have it I must pay extra <laughs> for it <laughs> to get it here to Los Angeles which it was totally worth doing. And then, you know, it just takes one little heart from an author you love on a tweet to be like, yay, I feel so seen today. Well, this is nice. I think, you know, this is important because readers and writers are a connected community. They are not kind of special people sitting on, on high hills. Basically, we are all more or less in the same position. We, we we all care about books, we care about literacy, we care about writing. We are all on the same learning curve in different places. And I think it's important that we understand this, that there is, there is no kind of special community of chosen ones here at all. We are all kind of making our way as best we can and, and nobody knows everything. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. And you are such a fun lady. I have a lot I want to ask you about. But since you mentioned teaching, I, what did you teach? I did not realize you were a teacher back in the day. I taught French and German for something like 15 years. Oh, my. Much of it in a, a boys' grammar school in the north of England, which, which I ended up writing about in several of my later novels. I, I waited a while before I dared write about teaching, but I got there in the end. Wait, how so did did your writing career and your teaching career intersect or did one end and then you began the other 
Well, no, I was writing books for for all all throughout my teaching career. It's it's not the kind of job that you can stop and take up a job like writing and expect to still eat and put food on the table. It wasn't like that. So I had quite a nice kind of symbiotic relationship with teaching and writing for a while. And I wrote three books and had them published while I was a teacher. And then the balance shifted slightly when Chocolat became so much more successful than anybody had expected it to. And and I had to make a choice. I had to either give up teaching or, or give up writing. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give this a try now. But it took me a long time to get to that point. And I think people sometimes, they, they, they forget this about, about authors. They assume that there was a conscious decision to be a professional author at a particular time and somebody took steps to make that happen. It doesn't happen like that most of the time. It's a pretty messy process and a very risky one, too. How did you feel when all of a sudden people were interested in Chocolat on a, on the next level, on the biggest level? I, I, like, what did that, did that impact your writing? Did you get stage fright after that? Or were you like, yes, let's take advantage of this and ride this wave? Well, no, none of those things, really. Um, bear in mind that I was still teaching. I was raising a four-year-old child. I was a long way away from the stuff that was happening around the movie. And I didn't really believe in it for a long time until it had properly emerged and, and there was no disputing that it had happened. I think I was quite suspicious of the whole process because, you know, I know what it's like. Sometimes an author can kind of burst onto the scene and their book is immensely successful and then they don't manage to sell any further books or their other books just don't seem to take in the same way. And I thought, you know what, I've got this this job that I've had for 15 years. I've got regular pay. I've got a pension. I've got all sorts of things here. Do I really want to give up that security to do something which is, at best, very risky? And so I put a number of things into place so that I could take a sabbatical from teaching and so that I could explore what it would be like to be a full-time writer, to see, first of all, if it worked for me, if I could do it, um, if anybody wanted me to do it. It took me some time to actually give up teaching. Um, and I really, that was mostly just because I got pushed out. You know, I said that I would come back to teaching in a year after my sabbatical. And when I came back rather shamefacedly to say, say that I wasn't really going to be able to, my boss just laughed and said, oh, well, we, we knew you weren't coming back. We've given your job to somebody else. Yeah. So, so the decision kind of got made for me, but it was, I'm saying this cautiously now, 20 years on, I think it was a reasonable decision to make. You are extremely practical for such a creative person. Often those things don't go together. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if the, if the, the thing is practicality and creativity going hand in hand. I, I just, I was aware that I had responsibilities, that I had a child, that I had a family, that I couldn't just swan off and do what I wanted to. Um, and that if it all went pear-shaped, then obviously there would be repercussions. So I had to plan a little bit. Mm. Um, I'm not necessarily the most practical of people, but yes, there are some things that have to be thought of. And, and I think coming from Yorkshire, as I do, Yorkshire people are quite hard-headed and they are quite quite cynical about about things that they consider to be airy-fairy nonsense. And, and while I was growing up, every time I said I was interested in being a writer, everybody made it very clear to me that they thought that was definitely airy-fairy nonsense. And so, you know, I was brought up with a kind of healthy cynicism of of, of the idea of, of, you know, just dropping everything and going off and, and writing books. Right. And you got there anyway, 
I did in the end. How old were you when you realized, I am a writer, I need to write? Oh, I'll tell you when that happens. Um, I've always needed to write. As for being a writer, it took me a very long time to understand that I could call myself a writer. Um, nowadays, I tend to tell people on Twitter that, you know, you can call yourself a writer as soon as you've written something. But I think in those days, um, when I was just starting off, even when I'd had books written and published, I found it quite hard to say that I was a writer to people. Even now, I find it quite hard to say that I'm a writer to people. It's much easier to think of myself as a, a French teacher on a very, very long sabbatical. Um, being a writer is a funny thing because most people are not just writers most people are writers and they do something else most people who write don't make a living from writing and so they have another job um, and their writer identity is kind of subsumed by their day job identity and they're slightly afraid to say that they're writers because writing is not 100% their main earner um, yeah, it took me a long time to understand that you can still call yourself a writer if if writing is not your main job, um, just as long as you write. Mm-hmm. So when did you come to that conclusion for yourself? Well, I started calling myself a writer about 10 years in from having published my first book. Oh, wow. Um, it took me that long to actually acknowledge that, yeah, it, it might be something that I could say that I did now. Yeah, I, I started really thinking about it when um, when I gave up everything else and became a writer full time. Yes, but you know, it, it's I think giving oneself permission to be something is one of the most difficult things in in creative professions, particularly things like writing and music. People are very very wary because they feel that there is a kind of group of special people, and if they are not part of that group of special people, then they are somehow imposters. Writers suffer an incredibly high level of imposter syndrome. And it's, you know, I tell this to people and they find it very difficult to believe because they see me as somebody they think is successful who couldn't possibly have imposter syndrome. And yet that's actually what imposter syndrome is. I think it's because creative people were so in awe of our, our heroes, the people that made us want to do what we do, that writing is is some form of magic it's like how is this person in my head right now and I'm going on this <laughs> journey and it's so when it's done well it's like a mystery how in the world did this happen how did this get on the page and how is it living in my mind and I think there's a sense of awe around that I think that's true but everybody who reads has heroes and writers have heroes also and writers write fan letters to other writers i remember when i met ray bradbury he was uh, he, he was talking to me about uh, how he had been writing fan letters in very late life in his 80s to um, to people he admired and i said wow you write you write fan letters and he said yes you're never too old to write a fan letter and they're always appreciated and this was not something that had occurred to me i thought you know these that, that these stratospheric heroes of of the writing world you know they couldn't possibly also feel humbled or overawed in front of somebody else but of course they do and this is the great secret of it that the people you look up to also look up to other people it's true. And I love that. Thank you so much for saying that. What was the first book that you wrote that you got published? The first book I had published was called The Evil Seed. And it was a vampire novel set in Cambridge. Um, my mother still refers to it as that awful book. Um, <laughs> I, 
Yeah. As a child, I was I was banned from reading horror or fantasy or anything that my mother thought was scary or creepy or spooky or or, or in any way kind of unsuitable. My mother is, is very academic, and she's also very French and very practical in lots of ways. And so she banned me from, from reading horror because she felt that it was, A, worthless, and also would give me nightmares. And so it was inevitable that when I left home, I would read a lot of horror. And obviously, I went and wrote a horror novel afterwards. And, and it took a while to get published because it wasn't your standard horror novel. Um, it, it was a horror novel with literary pretensions, which meant that people who loved horror probably thought it was too dense and too difficult. People who loved literature thought it was too schlocky. I got one fan letter from a woman in Pinna who signed it from herself and her cats, and that was the first fan letter I was likely to get. Um, I think I don't think I got another one for another 10 years. Oh, do you still have it? I do, I do, I still have it. I still have all of them. I answered it too. And I was I was pretty proud of that book for what it was. It wasn't bad. It wasn't as bad as my mother said it was. But it wasn't quite me. It wasn't quite my voice. I was still I was one of those writers who found their voice relatively late in life. And I was very good at doing other people's voices and pastiching other people's styles. But it took me until I was nearly 30 to, to actually find that I had a voice of my own and I knew what that voice was. And so my first two books were, were written in other people's voices. Uh, the Evil Seed was very much a kind of mashup of Mary Shelley and various other Victorian gothics. Um, my second book, Sleep Pale Sister, was a kind of Wilkie Collins pastiche. And yeah, it was, it was with Chocolat that I found that I actually had found something that was mine. How lovely that it was the book that resonated with so many people. Did, did, I don't how know how this went. Was Chocolat the book a big success before the movie happened? It was. It, 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 uh, it went to the top of the charts when it came out. And because the movie was made so quickly after the book came out, it went back to the top of the charts when the movie came. So I had kind of two bites at the cherry with that book. And it was very strange because I'd never, I'd never had any kind of proper success. My first two books had kind of gone out to what we shall now call a cult audience, which means that they were largely unread. Um, you know, they were paperback originals. They were not supported with any kind of promotion. I remember asking uh, with my second novel, asking my publishers um, what promotion that they were going to do for me with it because I'd read somewhere that books got promoted. And they said, oh, well, you know, we might run to a book of stamps and a few phone calls. Yeah, that was the kind of level I was at. And then suddenly, you know, I was doing TV. I was traveling all over the place. I was doing masses of media. Um, the book had sort of shot to the top of the charts and nobody knew who I was. Nobody remembered that I'd written these other two books that that had been so unsuccessful that everybody assumed that Chocolat was my first novel. And I had to kind of come to terms with that very fast it was it was all a bit of a learning curve and and you know I, I'm not sure I handled it terribly well in some ways mm. well what was the hardest part about that well I think there was a great deal of scrutiny over me and my family and my life 
um, there was a lot of curiosity. I wasn't used to talking about myself. I was I was pretty good at talking in front of a classroom of people, talking about, you know, some French novelist, but talking about me and my novels and what I'd felt when I wrote something, it, it just seemed very intimate and very awkward. I wasn't good at it initially. It was, um, I was very anxious all the time. And then when the movie came out, I mean, I'd thought that it was um, already quite stressful enough having a best-selling novel. But then when the movie came out, and just countrywide but worldwide, and I had um, tabloid journalists camping outside my house and, and trying to photograph me walking my daughter to school and this kind of thing. And it was, it was very, very peculiar. Yeah. I feel like it's a movie that has held up over these 20 years and that people are still discovering it. So do you find maybe that you have like a smaller version of that that happens in waves? Well, I don't know. I think it's very nice that people still like the movie. And I think it's it's a tribute to the director and the cast and and the music. And they made something which was not exactly my my book but it was it was pretty close and it was charming and lovely and I, I loved the experience of doing it I mean I, I say it was an anxious time and so it was in some ways but it was also there were moments when it was absolutely wonderful and it was magical um but yes these things do come in waves um I think that at the time that Chocolat came out there was a wave of certainly in England very serious quite bleak literature that was set in 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 a very hyper-realistic setting. Uh, there was very little sensuality in it because it was supposed to be almost Puritan in style. In fact, there was um, a group of literary novelists, popular at the time, calling themselves the New Puritans. Um, and it was, I'm not saying it was badly written stuff, but it was quite grim reading. And Chocolat popped up out of nowhere, full of this unashamedly lush and sensual writing. And and I think people were just quite relieved to have a different message, to, to be able to read something that was not entirely realistic, that had magic in it, that had food in it, that had feelings in it, that had this message that it was okay to, to enjoy life and to forgive yourself for your little indulgences and... It's, you know, people people just liked that idea, and I think it it popped up at at a time when perhaps people needed to be told those things. It's such an interesting synchronicity because that's one of the messages of of the book. It's this contrast between like fundamentalist restriction and then freedom and what and sensuality and and enjoying the lush things of life and it's interesting that your book came out at a time where there was a lot of restriction well yes i think that sometimes one opposite attracts another mm -hmm. and i think this is what causes the cycles in publishing um it's something that I've thought later because at the time I wasn't really thinking at all. I just I just wrote the story that I wanted to write as I always have done. Yeah. But yes, looking back, I think perhaps that was that was what happened and and it did begin a kind of wave of books that were written in a similar kind of way that were written about food that had food in the title that that looked at the idea of travel in different places and and yeah they even coined this term gastromance which is <laughs> a bizarre and 
and evil term as far as I can see, but they they applied it to these books. And I thought, my, you know, they think I've, I've invented a genre. It's not true. Um, there's been food in story for millennia. In fact, food and fiction are very, very close, particularly when you look at fairy tales and folklore and the kind of thing that I write about all the time. Actually, it's it's full of food references because they are the things that anchor into reality a story which is essentially fantasy. You have to do that. You have to anchor fantasy with things that people can relate to on a, a visceral kind of human basis, and food is one of those things. Oh, but you do it so well. Many people may do it, but they do not do it the way Joanne Harris does it. You make it an experience, and then it, it the food has meaning beyond the flavor of it or the nourishment of it. And I think that's what makes reading Shock a lot and, and all the books in the sequel such a delight. I think you're just trying to make us hungry because <laughs> peaches. Well, it certainly made people hungry. Yes, I got yes. a lot of letters saying, you know, you made me hungry. You made me want to eat chocolate. You made me want to look at recipe books, which was fine. It was not my intention to do that. However, what I do in, in my books, even when I'm not writing about food, I do like stories to be immersive, as immersive as possible. And talking about different senses is one way of doing that. I think, you know, I've noticed that a lot of writers are extremely visual in the way they write, but they don't often mention things like sense and tastes. And when I was writing Chocolat, I was aware that I was doing something that I didn't think had been done all that often, in that I was connecting through scent and taste more than I was connecting through other things. And partly this is because I, I have synesthesia and therefore I process things in a slightly different way. Being not entirely neurotypical, I, I tend to notice things in a different way to, to most people. And so I tend to experience the world through particularly colour and scent. And I think that tends to come out also in my writing. Wow, I did not know that about you. <laughs> yes, I smell colours. Basically, that's 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 what happens. It took me a while to understand that not everybody did and that there was a name for it. And I looked into this afterwards and talked to other people with synesthesia and realised that actually that, that there are a lot more people with this condition than we think. And it's it's a much more complex condition than we think. But it does it does mean that, you know, it explains to a certain degree why colours and scent have such a strong presence in, in what I write rather than just sound and vision. That's fascinating. I, I, I can see how that, you know, what's interesting is I agree with you. The movie's so different from the book, but they did manage to capture the charm. And some of that actually comes through, even though it's a visual medium, you still get a sense of like the taste of the chocolate and, <laughs> and the way things might smell on the breeze. I was in a, I, I lead a private group online and I was leaving to tell them I get to go interview Joanne Harris. Yay, I'm so excited. And I wanted to grab a, a gif from the movie and they're all Johnny Depp. And oh, it, really? <laughs> it, I was just like, where is Juliette Binoche in this? And it's interesting to me because that character is featured more prominently in the movie, which is important for Hollywood. That's, you know, they want to emphasize the love story, especially with a dashing movie star. But what was your reaction, your reaction when the movie first came out? Did you feel violated or did you feel like, okay, this is its own thing? Well, you know, it wasn't such a surprise to me as it might have been to people who had loved the book. 
um, because, of course, I was told what was going to be done before it was done, and I was shown several previous incarnations of the, the screenplay, and so I, I kind of knew what shape the story was going to take. Um, and, and I also know that there were a number of ideas that they'd had about how to, to create this story that were so different from my book that I, I thought, well, if they do that, we are not going to recognize my story at all. It's just going to be vaguely inspired by it as opposed to being um, a film version of it. I mean, for instance, they started off wanting to, to set the story in America in the Deep South. What? Yeah, at the end of the, uh, the kind of... Um, the, the, the late 1800s and they were going to have Whoopi Goldberg in the lead and I oh thought my wow goodness. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, they, they want to make it an American race fable um, <laughs> and it would have been very very interesting but it would not have been my book at all and and then they changed their minds and they decided that they were going to set it in modern day New York with, with Gwyneth Paltrow and I thought, well, however much we may love Gwyneth Paltrow and feel that she's a wonderful actress, are people really going to believe that she eats chocolate? Um, and, and, and then when they said, well, we've decided not to do that and we've decided to bring it back to Europe and to have a largely European cast, I thought, ah, oh, you know, they, they have understood. And, of course, I had been talking about Juliette Binoche and saying, had you considered her in the role right from the start? And nobody had listened to me. You know, people don't normally listen to the the author when it comes to casting suggestions, and they had ideas of their own. And so when finally they did cast Juliette Binoche, and this was nothing to do with what I had said, it was entirely because Juliette found out that they were filming and went and asked Harvey Weinstein for the role because she wanted it and she'd read the book. But, you know, to me this was a kind of wonderful sense of of synchronicity and things coming together. And I thought, right, okay, they've understood the European thing. They've understood that it's important to set it in France. They've understood that it has to have a certain aesthetic and they have understood who they need to cast in the lead role. Beyond that, any small things that didn't completely dovetail with, with what I'd written weren't important compared to that. They did an amazing job with the casting across they the did. board. They did, yes. Um, even even Johnny Depp, who at the time I didn't know at all. I wasn't I wasn't aware of him as an actor. I'd only ever seen him in one thing. I bear it in mind that um, that he wasn't as famous twenty years ago as he is now. Um, I'd only ever seen him in in one movie by John Waters called Cry Baby. Oh yeah. And I, I didn't even know who he was supposed to play. I thought, oh, is he going to play the priest? <laughs> Are they going to cast a young kind of sexy priest and are they going to have some sort of dynamic going on there between them? And I thought oh, that would work. Then they gave him the part of who and, and I thought, OK, well, you know, he's obviously a big star over there in the States. They are going to expand his role and they're going to give him a much more important role than he has in the book. How's that going to work? And actually, it seems to me that he was quite happy to have a relatively small role because, you know, you watch the movie and he doesn't actually appear until halfway through. Mm-hmm. However many gifts um, he appears in, his his role is a relatively modest one. Yeah, I think uh, Judy Dench was a bit of a scene stealer too. She's wonderful. He was very, very good and and lovely. In fact, they were all lovely. I was on set for some time, kind of backstage, because Juliet wanted me to be available uh, just in case anybody needed anything like that's going to happen. But it meant that I was I was on set for a couple of weeks and um, 
and everybody was lovely. Everybody was super kind and sweet and approachable, and nobody did that thing whereby some actors sit in their trailers and 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 sulk. No, nobody was like that. Everybody was just really chill and nice and friendly. Um, and it was it was the best experience I could have had, really, because a lot of my other friends who are writers who have had movies made of their work have a very different story to tell about their experience. Yeah. How special that you have that memory. I, I actually want to bring it back to the books, too, because the movie is so much fun, but the books are, too. And the series continues now with The Strawberry Thief. But when people ask me, I often talk about... I don't think this is a real genre, but it is here on this podcast. Witchy fiction is my favorite. <laughs> and people will yeah, say, fiction. I'll do fiction. that. Witchy fiction. And people will say, what's your favorite book? And I'll often say, shock a lot, but I, I love The Girl With No Shadow even more. And which in, in the UK, it was The Lollipop Shoes, which I did not know for a long time. Did yeah, that, did um, that name change? My American Audrey? publishers do like they do like to change the titles of books, how and it can be confusing to people. How do you feel about that? Uh, it's something that American publishing seems to need to do. I, I think it's a bit pointless, but you know, I mean, I am humble enough to think that maybe they know their market better than I do. Mm-hmm. Also, there's not that much I can do about it. Um, you know, it's not it's it's. I think certain terms are perhaps less easy to understand. And and although we share a language, there are significant cultural differences. And so there are resonances to certain things that that I may not pick up, that that my American publishers may pick up and think, well, maybe that's not quite right as the title. So I I basically leave them to, to do it if they feel that it's necessary. Yeah. The lollipop shoes and the girl with no shadow, it, they're so different. They could be two totally different books. But the next one I understand because I can't even pronounce. <laughs> Peaches for Monsieur Le Cure, I think. And then uh-huh. they changed it to Peaches for Father Francis. And I'm like, okay, that I can that I can say. <laughs> well, yes. Although, you know what? You didn't manage too badly with that. Most people, most people are okay. But yeah, I mean, it was that was a tricky book title because my, my English publishers didn't want uh, the original title that I had, um, which I should have kept because it was the best title and Americans could have pronounced it just fine. But yeah, we sometimes have little tussles over titles, publishers and I. And, and and sometimes, you know, something that seems very obviously the right title to an author may not chime with the, the publisher's sales and marketing department. So very often there's there's a little discussion about that. Yeah. Well, The Strawberry Thief seems to be making it intact to America. It's coming out in July, July 2019, for someone listening to this in the future. And I can see it did very, very well in the UK when it was when it was released. People are loving it. Yeah, they they seem to. Um, I've been very lucky. All my books have done very well. And I've got a very, very supportive reader base who have followed me to all sorts of places, but who are also equally happy when I come back to familiar ground, which is what I've done here. And this is the the fourth time that I've written about Fian Roshi and her daughters, and time has passed for her and for me too. And it's important in a way that time should pass, because what I didn't want to do was to write stories that carried on instantly from each other, because 
you know, I wanted to give my characters space to develop and to grow and to have have things happen to them so that we didn't just get Chocolat 2 and 3 and 4. Um, and, I, you know, by now I would be up to Chocolat 20 and I would be completely mad because, you know, I, I, I don't... I don't like just revisiting the same ground over and over again. I like to come back to a story with something new, um, a change. What is it about this world that makes you want to keep coming back? Well, I think partly I like the characters. Um, I like the place that I have set up, which is not quite a real place, but which is close enough to real places to make me feel nostalgic. Um, And I feel particularly close to Vian, who... Although she is not me, she and I do share quite a lot. Um, initially, when I wrote Chocolat, I was the mother of a four-year-old child, um, and I was writing about the mother of a six-year-old child. And I think inevitably, some of that managed to to cross over into fiction. I wrote from a perspective that I understood, um, and I wrote, at least to a certain extent, from experience. And so... Later, when I returned to that world, I did it when my daughter was an adolescent. And I wrote from the perspective of a woman with an adolescent daughter. And now with with The Strawberry Thief, I'm writing from the perspective of a woman whose daughter has left home, or at least one of her daughters, because Fian has two. Um, And she is finding it difficult to let go. And here again, I'm writing from some basis of personal experience, because my daughter, who is now 25, has left home, was actually living in Moscow last year. Um, And so some of that experience and some of those feelings inevitably found their way into the narrative, because, because they do. If you're writing about people who have become real to you, then you tend to attribute real feelings to them and they they have to come from somewhere. Yeah, you have lovely empathy for all your characters that comes through because Anouk, her her daughter, her first daughter, is not just a prop in her story. She's, Vianne is this free-spirited character. She kind of like rides in on the breeze like Mary Poppins. (laughs) You know, she just like, she just (laughs) kind of goes where the wind takes her. And you actually acknowledge the daughter's experience of that and not always in, you know, the most fabulous ways. And I like that. I like that there's there's a dimension to the characters and that you have empathy for the daughter's experience. Oh, yes, I think that's important. Um, I like Fian very much, but I don't think she's a perfect character by any means. Um, and she does her best as a mother, but she is not a perfect mother either. She has tried to to keep her her daughters, and particularly Rosette, the younger one who is 16 in The Strawberry Thief, she has tried to keep them safe because she doesn't she doesn't find it easy to settle down. She doesn't find it easy to to find a tribe to belong to. And so her daughters have been all she's had all her life, and she has clung to them and tried to protect them and has kept Rosette particularly in a kind of snow globe all her life. And as you read this book, which I hope people will you realise that actually Vian is the one in the snow globe and that Vian is the one who needs to come of age and who needs to let go. And so much of this book is about the idea of letting go and understanding and growth and change and acknowledging change um, and acknowledging that it's not always easy, but it is also a part of life and therefore something that we, we need to roll with. Um, and so, yes, uh, much of this book is actually about grief and grief within change and how 
how being a parent doesn't actually get any easier. Well, you just answered my question, which is what can we expect with the strawberry thief? <laughs> well, there's all sorts in the strawberry thief. There are a number of of mysteries in this story. Um, 20 years have passed for me since Chocolat. 16 have passed for Vianne. Um, Anouk has left home. She is living in Paris. Rosette, who is 16, is still living in Lanskenay with Vianne in the chocolate shop. And Vianne has settled down. Much to her surprise, she has been accepted in the village. And she's been living there for five years now with her chocolate shop. She has her friends. Even Renaud, the priest, who was such a pain in the ass in Chocolat, um, has actually mellowed a bit and has become an, an actual friend. You know, he still has a way to go before he can be a completely decent human being. But he's getting there. Mm. Um and most of my stories begin with, with some element of change. And in this case, it is the death of the florist, Narcisse, who is an old man. We've met him in the previous books, but we've not known much about him because he's taciturn, uh, doesn't talk much. We know that he doesn't like the priest, Renaud, uh, that he does like Roux, because Roux is as taciturn as he is. Um, and he dies, leaving all of his property to his daughter, except for one significant parcel of land which he leaves to Rosette. Um, nobody knows why. There is a mystery here. And he also leaves, again to Renaud's surprise, Renaud in charge of executing his will. And he leaves him also a written confession, a long document that Renaud is by duty obliged to read. And Renaud feels a bit personally attacked by this because he knows that Narcisse didn't like him and therefore anything that he has to read is probably something he's not going to like. But this confession holds the key to why Rosette has inherited the parcel of land, which is of great importance. And actually, Rosette is at the centre of this story. Hers is the main narrative voice. And the third bit of mystery is a woman who appears, much as Vianne Rocher appeared in Lanskenet, pretty much overnight, on the wind, and takes over the shop, Narcisse's florist, which is across the square from Vianne's shop. This is a woman who may or may not be quite like Vianne in some ways, and who Vianne, rightly or wrongly, sees as a bit of a threat. I'm smiling so hard, my cheeks hurt. I'm so excited to, to get to have this moment, but I'm excited for all the readers who are hearing this right now and going, yay, I can't wait to read The Strawberry Thief. I have a friend here in the States who sent me a picture of her copy of The Strawberry Thief because a friend of hers in London was kind enough <laughs> to ship her a copy when it came out. So, Oh, that's nice. Yeah, we're excited. We're waiting excitedly. I can't wait till it gets here in July. We can pre-order now. Is that true? I'm, I'm pretty sure you can, yes. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and do that because I cannot wait. I, I actually, can we have a little bit of fun here? I, I have a funny little game I would like to play with you. Go ahead. Okay. It's, it's a one-step game. All you have to do is finish this sentence. Cool. Okay. And this morning, the shed is... This morning, the shed is, well... Well, you know what the shed is. It was on Twitter. This morning, the shed is a fishing net, uh, as I recall, mm. cast over the dawn fields in the hope of catching fallen stars. 
Oh, but before I ask you to explain what the shed is, there's a, there's three that I picked out to read that I, I just love those poses. It says, and this morning, the shed is a wishing well from which comes the sound of laughter. And this, yes. and this morning, the shed is an underground cavern lined with thistledown and moss, scented with patchouli and rose, and lit by a thousand fireflies. And this morning, the shed is a bottomless cask, I'm going to pr- mispronounce this, of Amontillado, the cask of Amontillado, which is, I know, an Edgar Allan Poe reference. Yeah, this is this is um, this is my my morning Zen exercise. I actually do work from a shed. I have a shed in the bottom of my garden. Um, I'm not always there when I'm working because I do so much traveling and so many festivals and so many other things that I'm not always able to to work from home. But uh, but when I am in my shed, and sometimes even when I'm not, I have got into the habit of tweeting about it. Initially, this happened when my husband was building the shed and I would talk about how it was getting on. And then when it was it was ready, I would talk about what I was doing there. And, and finally, the shed evolved a kind of personality of its own. And, and like Brigadoon, it changes location. Um, and like like Howl's Moving Castle, it it goes to various places and becomes different things depending on the day and the mood. And and so writing about the shed has become it's it's become my my first exercise of the day and it's supposed to herald the start of my writing day and it's supposed to be a kind of yes a kind of little mini meditation exercise before I before I start work and nowadays of course if I don't tweet about the shed I will get people on Twitter going well what's the shed doing why haven't you why haven't you tweeted about the shed are you not in the shed are you in another shed uh, and, and so you know I, I do think the shed has more fans than I do nowadays <laughs> I love it's its own character. I feel that way about buildings and homes. They're very—they're like their own little characters. So I love following the shed's journey as well. And I'm so sorry that I botched the pronunciation of one because that's a really good one. <laughs> Have you ever seen the video of Roald Dahl in his writing shed where he sets up? He goes outside every day and he sits in a recliner and he's yeah yeah he was a famous shed worker but I think a lot of a lot of authors have sheds in one, one way or another it's it's I mean, obviously before I got to be a, a professional author I didn't have a shed I didn't even have a desk I just had a laptop and I worked on the floor um, and so I got very used to to using whatever space was available but I'm also very aware of the the importance and the usefulness of having a designated workspace and and this is something that I, I talk about quite often if I'm if I'm doing any coaching for creative writing because I think as well as giving yourself permission to write and permission to find it important and permission to ask other people to help you by doing chores by looking after the kids by making time available it's also really useful to be able to go right this is my workspace now in it, I work. I don't have to do anything else. It's what I'm here for. And that's a really good psychological exercise, I think, for people who, who maybe don't have a lot of time yes. and who need the world away from them and forget about the phone and forget about, you know, the things that need to be done. Um, it doesn't have to be a shed. It can be a room. It, it can be a cafe. It can be a park bench. I know Joanna Cannon wrote most of her first novel in her car because she was working in a hospital and going to the car was the only quiet place she had, but it, it was enough. 
um, just having a designated workspace of any sort, even if it's mostly imaginary, like my shed, actually a really good step on the path to to taking your writing seriously and getting on with it. I think that's really important today more than ever when people feel like they're constantly checking their phones and the internet and there's not a lot of space to just go into deep work and concentrate and focus on one thing and having a container for that, even if it's a closet. I've heard plenty of writers writing about them writing in their closets. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just what having... Works? Yeah, whatever. Whatever works. As long as there is a way of of setting out your your desk, however big or small it is, and just going, right, this is where I work, this is all I do here. Uh, because the rest of the world can be very, very intrusive, quite apart from social media and all the things that need to be done. It's very hard to disconnect, and sometimes it can take a long time. And anything that makes that ability to disconnect happen more easily and quickly is, is good for you as a writer, I think. Well, well, speaking of time, you seem to make the most of it. What is driving you? I, it seems to me from the outside looking in, you seem like a joyful person who takes pleasure in life. But maybe that's a false impression. Like what is you're in a band, you write blog posts, you're on Twitter, your newsletters are fabulous. Obviously, you're a prolific author. What is happening? How are you getting your mother? <laughs> Well, you know what? I do these things because I love them. Um, I think you're right to say that I am generally a joyful person. I, I'm not always a joyful person. I think, I think in many ways I have a very kind of manic depressive personality, but I get joy from what I do. And I tend to actively pursue things that I know are going to give me pleasure and, and writing stories and making music and collaborating with other people in creative projects, all of these things I find energizing and revitalizing and I, I pursue them. I, I tend not to pursue the things that I know are not going to work for me. Yes. Yeah. Well, can you tell us about the Storytime band? Yes, we are. Um, I was in a band when I was 16. I'm still in the same band or at least um, two of the same people are in it. One is my husband. The other is my friend, Paul. We've been writing music together for well over 30 years. And fairly recently, we decided to to put some of my stories to music, make off them a kind of stage performance, which would involve songs and music and visuals and pieces of film um, and performance and, and to take this show to, to various festivals. And we've been doing this over the past few years. Um, we've recorded a couple of CDs. We're just about to bring out our second. And, um, you know, it, it's lots of fun. I know a lot of writers who who are in bands in one way or another. It's, it's something which if you scratch the surface, you will find that, you know, the majority of authors have been or still are in bands. And I think it's partly because... You know, it, it's a solitary profession and it's quite nice to do something creative with somebody else. And so collaborative projects are, are fun for authors to do because, you know, you're not just on your own in a shed and you've got somebody else's creativity there to bounce against. And, and it's it's nice to do. And also stories. Stories don't just stay on the page. It's kind of nice to take stories into different media. Mm -hmm. So take them to stage, to dance, to music, to screen, to game. It's 
these are all natural homes for stories and there's absolutely no reason that a story should just stay on the page static because actually stories are volatile they they like to find their way into other other areas of experience and you're just the person to to give them that outlet i love that and, and you know being on stage too is you get that feedback that you don't get when you're alone in the shed writing. And then there's the physical component to it. I, I could see how that's a nice balance to writing alone. It's very different. It's very different because being on stage, you have no way of hiding from the public. I, in my shed, um, I can write books. I can send them out in the world. I don't have to watch people reading them. That's not something that I do. Yes, I'll get feedback. There'll be there'll be people who will review the books, but very rarely will I get somebody actually looking at me saying, I thought this. Whereas if you're on stage, if you're singing or if you're playing or if you're performing, you have got your audience reaction right there in front of you all the time. There is no getting away from it. There's there's no there's no escaping it. They either like it or they don't like it, but you've got a very, very intimate connection there with with your audience i mean writing is is intimate enough as it is but not all writers get to meet their audience and and perform as well you know that's that's what you're up there for mm-hmm. well and you've been doing that now as a writer too doing book tours are you coming to america to promote the strawberry thief i actually don't know yet my my publishers have been very very quiet about it, possibly because they know that I am touring the UK at the moment and then touring Europe. Um, so I'm not quite sure what they've set up yet, if anything. Um, I am actually coming to America in in mid-June, although it's kind of incidental. It's not for the strawberry thief. I'm coming to, um, to research a travel piece in New York. Maybe I will stay and do something then. Who knows? It's, it's all kind of up for grabs at the moment. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I feel honored. I really oh, It's entirely my, my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. Can I, can I ask you one more question before I let you go? Uh, oh, okay. Please do. So this is the question I always ask at the end, and it can be whatever pops into your mind. It doesn't have to be the end all, be all, but what is your one tip for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? Well, this is a very interesting question. I'm not sure that the life of your dreams is necessarily the one that you want, really. When I was a kid, I dreamed of being a writer, but I didn't really know what being a writer was. I think that the older I've got, the more I realize that actually planning for the future is a risky business. Having too many aspirations for the future and putting things off until those things happen is also a risky business because life is short, life is unpredictable, life is full of reversals. And so the older I get, the more I realize that the small things that you have now are worth focusing on. I'm not saying abandon dreams or abandon plans for the future, but don't forget the things that are happening right now, the things that are joyous and important right now, because who knows what the future's going to bring. Oh, that's so powerful. And in that way, the moment becomes the life of your dreams. You're able to make the most of it when you're present to it. I do think so, yes. I think it's... I remember once when I was at um, at school, we had a, we had a disco... And there was a girl in my class um, who I asked if she was going. 
And she was she was a pretty girl, but she was kind of heavy. And she was very conscious of it. And she said to me, I'll go to things like that when I'm thin. And I remember thinking, what a sad thing that was, that, you know, she wasn't able to enjoy herself because she was she was hoping that she would be a different person at some other time. And I thought, you know what, girl, you know, just go to the damn disco, dance. Yes. Because you look great. And anybody who tells you that you don't, they're just, they're just not worth cultivating. And so I remember at that time, I thought, you know, I'm not going to be like her. I'm going to keep doing things right now when I can do them, because you never know, you may not get another chance. That's true. Go to the damn disco and dance, people. (laughs) <laughs> yep, dance like there's nobody watching. Yes. Absolutely. I'm going to link to your website and the Strawberry Thief, but can you say it for people that are listening on the go, what your URL is? Oh, I am joanne-harris.co.uk. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Have an amazing day. And this was wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for hosting me. Yeah. How wonderful was that? How wonderful is she? So kind, so funny, so wise, in addition to being talented. So that only just amplified (laughs) the Joanne Harris fangirl in me. It also made me want to be bolder in terms of who I reach out to to bring on the show because you know there are so many authors, particularly authors of witchy fiction, that I would love to have on the show. I believe Lori Forrest is going to be on the show here this month. And I would love to reach out to Alice Hoffman, who wrote Practical Magic and The Rules of Magic and many other magical books. And so I feel like this Joanne Harris interview has emboldened me. Also, are you all watching Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's book come to life on Amazon Prime, Good Omens? It is so magical. I just started watching it this weekend and I am loving it. Another thing I wanted to mention is, well, you know now that I always play a new song or a new to me or a song I want to share with you, maybe new to you, at the end of each episode. I love me some rock and roll, so it's usually rock and roll. And today is no exception, except the way I came to finding this song is unusual. The kid and I... Every full moon, we do what we call full moon hunting. So we either by foot or by car go off in search of the moon. And the goal is to catch it right as it's coming up over the horizon. Because often right as it's rising, well, for one, it's as large as it's going to be when it's rising. But also it often will change colors from red to orange to yellow to white. If you've ever heard me talk about Tanner's favorite color is orange, that is true, but he will also tell you he has five favorite colors. For a long time, we did not know why that was, and they are black, white, red, orange, and yellow. And one day, we asked him why, and he finally told us it's because those are all the colors of the moon, black for the dark moon, white for the full moon, but also red, orange, and yellow as the moon is rising. I mean, oh, that kid, that kid, (laughs) he's so specific. Anyway, for the full moon in Scorpio, we sack, we wanted to go on a hike. 
And so we planned to hike up Griffith Park, this trail here by where we live in Griffith Park, up to the top of the Hollywood Hills to watch the moon rise. But it was a rainy, drizzly evening, and we ended up stopping halfway up the hike and turning back around. He was none too pleased with me. <laughs> but right as we were coming back to the parking lot, I heard rock and roll, rock and roll coming out of the park. And it was electric rock and roll. And I was like, what is that? Let, do you want to go see what that is? And he was like, yeah, let's go see. He was just happy to get to stay out a little bit longer. So we walked over. And there's something here called Street Food Cinema. I think there's a number of companies that do this, but I particularly love Street Food Cinema because it involves food trucks. And what they do is they blow up a big inflatable movie screen and people like camp out in the park as the sun is going down and they watch like a really popular movie. I think in this case, it was The Princess Bride. And then of course there's food trucks. It's a very cool summer thing to do. If you live in Los Angeles or a major city, you might want to check to see if your city does something similar. It's super fun, good times. Anyway, there was a band that was serving as the opening act as the sun was setting and people were just getting settled in. I guess nobody minded if they were getting rained on. It wasn't like a heavy rain. It was just a sprinkle, and Tanner will never forgive me for that, I'm sure. <laughs> But this band, it reminded me of like, if you were just out, you know, hiking Los Angeles and you stumbled on like Silver Sun pickups or Auto Lux back in the day, it was a good band, like quality music. And we wandered over and we watched them play for a little bit. And then we ended up going home. And so I was Googling street food cinema and The Princess Bride to try to figure out who the band was and come to find out it's a band called So Many Wizards. And I wrote to them to see if they would let me play one of their songs, and they said yes. So I'm going to do that for you now. The song is Don't Be Afraid, and I highly recommend... There will be a link to So Many Wizards here, or you can just Google it. I highly recommend checking them out because they are a really good band, and I think you'll really enjoy them. Tchau, 